This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Join us today as we uncover the story within Genesis chapter 2. We must remind ourselves, now and always, to leave our theology, philosophy, science, and any other presupposition about the biblical text behind as we sit down and eat the scroll offered to us by the scriptural God. Let us begin. We're starting today in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The first few verses of the section have always confused me a bit, and it's probably just due to the translation I'm most familiar with, the ESV, which is what we're reading from. When you look at the Hebrew, it is a bit more clear, and poetic even. Now, I don't want to overwhelm our listeners with a bunch of grammatical analysis. We have to mention various things, but we won't go terribly in-depth here, because it can be really easy to lose track of everything we're saying and how it all connects to our point. Soon... After another couple of episodes, we will begin our monthly installment of what we are calling In the Weeds Week, where we won't hold back every loaded explanation we can muster of every biblical theme and Hebrew word, if you're into that sort of thing. So join us there if you like that kind of stuff. But back to the text. Since I don't want to use too much of our listeners' time, I will ask them to just trust me for a moment and hear what I'm trying to say by offering this alternate translation. Then I invite them to go look at the text themselves and see what it says, and they can make up their mind whether or not they agree with me. So after looking at the Hebrew text, I feel that this rendering is more helpful in understanding the story. The plant, before they existed in the land, and any grass or herb of the field before they had grown, because God had not caused it to rain on the land, and because there was not a man to serve the ground, a mist arose from the land and watered the whole surface of the ground. And Yahweh Elohim formed man from the mud of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Okay, so what am I trying to bring to light with my rendering? Consider verses 5 and 6. 
It is communicating that no vegetation was in the land because God had not caused it to rain, and also because there was not man to work or serve the ground. The next verse says that a mist or a fog arose from the ground. Most English renderings often give the impression that a mist blew across an expanse of land. Well, wait a second, didn't we just hear that God had not caused there to be rain in the land yet? Yet here he is causing rain to occur? Well, the Hebrew word Allah literally means to go up, to arise, to ascend. So the idea is not a contradiction of the previous verse like our English might make us think, but rather it is a converse of idea, that water rose up from the earth itself and watered the surface of the ground. Not to grow plants, vegetation, but to make, well, what happens when you mix dirt and water? You get mud, clay, a material good for sculpting. And the text goes on to say that God formed man. This word for formed comes from a new Hebrew word we haven't heard yet, not asah, but a more specific word from the root yatsar, which means even more specifically to form in the fashion of sculpting. God waters the ground not to grow plants, as we have just heard that to be the problem, that there couldn't be any due to the lack of a caretaker, but he waters the ground to make it formable, and he then forms the humans, and in a couple verses, just as he does the humans, he forms the animals. So the plot of this story is being clearly presented here. There is no vegetation because there is no one to work it. There is no shepherd, no caregiver, and the solution is introduced. God waters the dirt not with rain, but with a fog that comes up from the land itself, providing this imagery of fertilization, similar to how pollen fertilizes the female flower or the female tree. But here it is the mother ground, the Adama, that is fertilized with this life-giving water to produce the material, the afar, the mud, which God uses to form and give life to man, who will be the one assigned to fulfill the problem of the Adama being without a servant. Okay, so why is it so important to clarify all this? Well, I think it's important that Firstly, we understand this to not be just a second creation account as we often talk about it, like it creates nothing more than a textual obstacle for us to maneuver. Why is it laid out this way in chapter 2 when it was previously established this way in chapter 1 and everything's contradicting? No, no, no. This is a literature. The first chapter of Genesis introduces the character of God as the cosmic causer, the cosmic creator. And this section here is the character introduction of man. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make because we have the tendency to read all of this chronologically because of how we were conditioned to historicize the text. Because in chapter 1, the authors are intending to show you how God functions in the story and how he has a monarchical authority over everything by giving function to everything. This is his story. When God creates mankind in chapter 1, the text is showing us that man is not special, but merely another player in this biosphere, just with a different job description. One that reflects the deity, but is still under divine control. But in chapter 2, he's doing something different. He's creating his shepherd, he's creating the flock, and he's creating the oasis where the shepherd is to live in harmony with the created order. And this gets beautifully illustrated uh, when we go on to verses 8 and 9. So in English, it goes like this. 
And the Lord God, that's our Yahweh Elohim, planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that oasis I spoke of is precisely what is addressed in verse 8 when it speaks of God planting a garden in the east. Culturally and theologically, for sure, we like to mystify the Garden of Eden and speculate about its spiritual properties or where it was located and things of that nature. But simply put, the barren field described in verse 5 is referencing the desert. In this case, the Syro-Arabian desert, as we will soon discover. And the garden that we are speaking of is none other than a desert oasis. First of all, the word Eden comes from a Ugaritic root for a place that is well watered, made even more clear by the four rivers that water the garden. And when the original hearers would have received this text, they would have been instantly reminded of the major oases in the Syrian desert, such as Tadmor and Palmyra. Also worth noting is that the original hearers would have understood the imagery that is happening here. The way of life that God is constructing is that of a Bedouin shepherd who leads his flock of sheep out of the desert and into the oasis. This is a major feature of this part of the world, of the Syro-Arabian desert, and these people still exist. You can travel to Arabia, to Jordan, to Egypt, to modern-day Israel, and you can see modern-day shepherds that live out in the desert who have a common culture and a common lineage that they have had for thousands and thousands of years. And their ancestors are the ones that are precisely being used as an image for how man was supposed to conduct creation. And God later assumes this role as his own flock, that is, mankind, become scattered and turn their back on the garden to build cities for their own glory, but also to their own demise. Their heart became a heart of stone, to echo the words of Ezekiel. That's why God will later call his people out of their urban environments and into the desert to meet him there, so that he can lead them back to Eden. This, my friends, is the bedrock of the biblical story, and it's all set up in this particular geographical landscape. I'd also like to briefly point out uh, the introduction of two new characters, the tree of life and the tree of good and evil. They, of course, play an important role, as we all know, so let's not forget about how they are being introduced as two independent characters, almost in opposition to one another, though that's not totally clear yet. In Hebrew, it says the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of good and evil. So although it's not entirely clear in the grammar, one could make the case that, grammatically, the authors are indicating more so that the tree of life was in the garden, while also being in proximity to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The focus is on the tree of life. 
not so much that the tree of knowledge was also in the garden, because if that is what they were saying, they could have been more specific in the grammar. They're telling us that the trees are in close proximity to one another, foreshadowing the temptation of Adam. Lastly, the tree of life is given the condition of being in the midst of the garden, so they're showing us that it is good. This is the tree of life-giving sustenance in the oasis that the Bedouin shepherd, Yahweh, puts man in. And now we will read verses 10 through 14. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. To make the geography even more clear, the Bible goes on to make sure that its listeners, wherever they may be, understand that the Syrian desert as the location of the story is a vitally important image to understand. We are told about four rivers that water the garden and the surrounding areas. The geographical information we get here is actually really quite fascinating. The first river we hear about is the one that runs through the land of Havilah. What is interesting, and something that gets overlooked, is the mention of gold, bdellium, and onyx. I think a lot of people skim past this, which is natural, but given how expensive literature creation was at the time, we have to understand and respect the fact that every syllable was produced with intention. To break this down a bit, it helps to understand that bdellium is a gum resin which is used to burn incense. And when we combine this with the gold and the onyx, which is a precious stone, our modern listeners might miss this detail, but the original audience would have instantly recognized that these are elements at play in temple worship. You have the precious stones that build the foundation, the gold that adorns the walls, and then the incense that is used in the actual worship service itself. It would be like today if I just said pencil, paper, backpack. What image does that conjure up in your head? School, right? That's the same type of automatic imagery they would have been reminded of because of how integral liturgical worship was in their daily experience. So why is this mentioned? Well, it's interesting when we take into account that the temple in ancient times was understood as the dwelling place of the deity. But here, the biblical deity is not in the wilderness where these elements are found, but in the garden where the tree of life is. And the text also makes an extra point to tell us that the gold in that land is good. It's almost saying that it's good where it's at, as unused nuggets in the ground. Therefore, it's instantly making it clear that God does not desire a temple made by human hands and that any such structure is a part of the downfall of man. It's also a way to foreshadow the fact that God will call his people from their fortified cities back into the wilderness. So the wilderness does eventually become God's dwelling place. And so the temple imagery in the Syrian desert, which as made clearer in 
future parts of the Bible as the land of Havilah has a double meaning. This gets echoed during the story of the Magi presenting the three gifts to the Christ child. What are these three gifts? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What's interesting is that frankincense and myrrh are both gum resins and thus both referring to two different ingredients for incense. Where's the precious stone in this case? It's nowhere to be found because in this account, the true temple, that is the dwelling place of God, is the Christ child himself, not the temple that Herod built in the middle of Jerusalem. So that's why they brought those gifts to begin with, because they were conducting a temple liturgy in the actual presence of God. This imagery appears many other times throughout scripture. So when it comes up again, hopefully our listeners will begin to see these elements coming through. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, verse 15 is beautiful. It contains the entirety of our responsibility as given to us by the scriptural God. So let's hear it again without the removal of the Hebrew devices. Then Yahweh Elohim took man and placed him in the garden to serve her and keep her. The her here is referring to garden, which is grammatically feminine in Hebrew. And we also should remember that the garden came up from the Adamah, the same place that man did. The word for serve in Hebrew is avad and has the connotation of slavery. Now, I know this is a triggering topic for many when we come across it in Scripture, but think of the way slavery is commanded to operate in the New Testament, the biblical method of slavery. The slave serves the master in love with every ounce of effort, and the proprietor, the slave owner, is to care for the slave in love, like they were members of the household themselves, given food and fair reward for their labor. That's what is being alluded to here. This is the perfect example of the biblical concept of slavery, just as other concepts will come across over and over again throughout the Bible are being established here in Genesis to communicate how we should understand the way that the characters are using these themes. Man will work in the garden, caring for the ground, and in return, he will benefit from the fruit, water, shelter, shade, etc., that the garden provides. God then tells the man to eat his fill from any tree except the tree of knowledge of good and evil, else the man will die. I want to emphasize the fact that this is communicated as a consequence of man's actions. So many people read this today and they say, oh, God is an abusive father because he says he will kill his son for making a mistake, a silly mistake, like eating from the wrong tree. Why can't he just let it go? This is an egregious misreading of the text. It's lazy, to be honest. God is issuing a warning to man out of love. If you eat from this tree, you will die because its fruit will kill you. I am giving you the choice either to trust me for your well-being or eat from this tree, trusting only in yourself. If you choose the latter, the result will be your death, naturally. Well, then you might ask, why did God put the tree in such close proximity to man that he can access it. 
the whys are immaterial. Why this, why that? It doesn't matter. A story is a story. If you constrict the authors from making their point, then you'll never hear the point. You can't dissect this text and look for things that were never there. In order to dissect something, you have to kill it. It says that knowing good and evil will bring death to man, and that's it. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God declares that it is not good for man to be alone. He sees that man will need assistance in this mission to serve the garden, so he forms the animals from the ground, and in the Hebrew, it uses the exact same grammatical function as before, when God forms Adam from the ground in verse 7. So in our ESV, it says in verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field. It makes it sound like it's in the past, but that's not the case in Hebrew. It just says, And God formed the animals of the field. The same way as in verse 7, it says, God formed Adam from the ground. So unlike our ESV, it does not allude to the idea that the animals were already there as previously created. In the Hebrew, it is sequential. God formed Adam. And several verses later, when God wants to solve the problem of Adam being without a helper, God forms all the animals of the earth. He goes through an immense amount of work to give Adam the assistance he needs. We can understand from the wording that he made an abundance of creatures to assist Adam in this mutualistic symbiosis of the garden. And that is important. God knows what Adam needs. Helpers to command and work with. So he gives him a ton. He gives him all of them. And we will soon hear how for Adam it is not enough. But before we do, please notice the wording used in the following. God brings the animals to Adam to hear what he will call them. This is from the Hebrew word kara, which is the same verb applied to God when he calls the light day and the darkness night, or when he calls the dry land earth, and so on. We discussed previously that this word is not just a cute naming of something, like a child with their first pet. It is the king giving his subjects station. God is giving a functional title to the different aspects of reality. So here, Adam, in his vassalship, that is, his reflecting nature of God's character, he is given the authority to assign the land animals their station. So moving on, we hear that for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. But this translation is totally missing the point. The Hebrew word for found in the conjugation in this verse is 
literally, he found, applied to Adam. And it has a negative preposition, lo, the Hebrew word lo, attached to it. So it is literally, he did not find. What am I trying to get across here? Well, in the English, it sounds like we were hearing this definitive circumstance, that this is the way it is, that there was not a suitable helper, period. But in the Hebrew, it's obvious that it is saying Adam couldn't find a suitable helper. God gave Adam every living creature on the earth as a helper because God realized it was not good for Adam to be alone. And what does Adam think? It's not good enough. He wants more. He wants someone just like him, someone to own. So God takes Adam's rib from his side and uses that to build a woman. I don't want us to miss this here. The word for rib in Hebrew has the connotation of two very important concepts in this passage. The first is the idea of side, as in the side of a building, or it could even literally mean a wall. Think of the human bone structure. The ribs are the structure of the upper chest cavity, right? So it makes sense. God is taking the structural side of Adam, dividing him into two, you could say. The second idea is the idea of a building material. The same word tzelah for side can be used to describe timber like the support beams of a building. To support this, when Adam says, this is bone of my bones, the word used for bone is different than the word used for rib. And the authors aren't writing a commentary on human anatomy, so they easily could have used the same word in both places. Therefore, it is clear that the word used for rib is meant to communicate these varied meanings. It's foreshadowing the metropolitan tendencies of Adam's descendants. One last note is that when God makes Eve from the rib of Adam, the verb for make is a completely new word. So far, we've had several verbs that mean some form of making, forming, creating. So this word is from the root bana, which means to build. So Adam wanted to have a desirable version of himself to rule over, and God built him exactly what he wanted. And we'll come to see that it is through this building that the curse of death will find Adam. And he is so excited about it. In verse 23, in the ESV, it translates it, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Here, his excitement about finally being presented with what he wants. It's like a child who uh, wants nothing but chocolate and candy for dinner and Six days out of the week, his mom gives him, you know, vegetables and fruit, healthy food. And then on that last day, he just gets his fill of candy and then he vomits it all up. That's exactly what's happening here. Yeah, in the in the Hebrew, it's more literally now. But even then, even with that reading, it's kind of like finally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's I think that's exactly what the what the authors are trying to get across. It's, he's saying, now this is what I wanted. Now this is uh, what I asked for. Um, all that stuff you gave me, God, I know better than you. <laughs> You've yeah. finally given me what I, what I expected. And so we can see how this is also foreshadowing the desire of the Israelites to have a human king over them later on in the story. They, like Adam not being satisfied by what he's been given, are not satisfied by being ruled by God, so they seek after a human king. God allows this, and grants their wish, even though it brings destruction. Of course, as we know from the fall of man, very famous story, this is exactly what happens to Adam. 
It is God's way of saying, I told you so when things fall under, when God's promises of death and destruction come true. This is instructive for us to always trust the will of God over our own will, because even the things we desire the most could be something that will destroy us. It doesn't take too much of an imagination to look around at our culture now and and see the manifestation of that. And it's not just now, it's all throughout human history. Humans do not know what they want for themselves, right? Hedonism does not work. So this is what is happening here. This is what it's saying. I also want to make it clear that this creation of the woman is quite distinct from the creation of the female Adam in chapter 1. In that case, God creates the Adam as male and female, and the two are equal. They are both created at the same time, and there is no superiority or an inferiority in their roles. So in verse 23, when Adam names his new creation, really, Isha, which means woman in Hebrew, because she was taken out of Ish, which means man, he is not giving her the function of womanhood or femininity, but that as a wife. He is husband over her, head over her. Just as he, Adam, was taken out of Adama to serve it, he expects the same thing from Isha, who was taken from Ish. He needs something to serve him. This is our first red flag, so to speak. We oftentimes think of the expulsion of Adam and Eve out of the garden as the definitive fall of man. But scripturally, it's much more of a gradient. The expulsion from Eden is just a part of the story, but not the main event, as we will see coming up. So that's why, scripturally speaking, the concept of original sin just isn't really there, at least not in the way that it's been presented by Western theologians. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is one of those beautiful Hebrew phrases that can be taken positively or negatively. As it appears in this story, it is very negative. We can be like Adam We can leave our father, the God of the Bible, and our mother, the Adamah, who we were stationed to serve and keep, and instead selfishly join ourselves to a conjured-up image of our own pride that we leech from to obtain some feeling of false satisfaction or fulfillment, that is, our spouse. Just hear the way we talk. We say, my wife, my husband, or his wife, his children. It's all about our propriety and our ego, or... We can hear what scripture is saying and listen to what Adam failed to understand. We can submit to the intent of God as he created one human being to serve the ground. Whether we are single or married, we are to be one flesh, undivided, in complete obedience to the scriptural God. To him be all the honor and glory and worship forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. We'll see you next week.